you are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. That belongs in a museum. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. That belongs in a museum. Welcome to Treasury Cast, the podcast devoted to the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and this show is, of course, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Before we get to our guest, Dan Greenfield of 13dimension.com, to talk about Limited Collector's Edition number C37, Batman, I did want to take a couple of minutes to talk about the show, why we're here, why I'm doing this, what it's all about, since this is the premiere episode. The Treasury comic is, as I said, it is my single favorite uh, comics format of all time. Uh, I grew up with them. I have very, very warm memories of going with my dad on weekends when he had to work in his office. He had to put some extra time in, and he would take me to you know, a newsstand or like a Woolworths or any sort of department store, and he would buy me a bunch of treasuries because they were a good value. Uh, he needed to keep me quiet for many, many hours in the afternoon while he worked, and so he would buy me these books, and I remember sitting at his secretary's desk with them piled up, and I just poured over them, and I loved them to death, and I would carry them under my arm with me down to the cafeteria where they had all the vending machines and I would buy myself a chocolate milk and a Twinkies or whatever and sit there and read these books because I loved comics history. I loved comics and these were a window into that world of something that I was unfamiliar with because at the time there were no comic stores or if there was, I wasn't aware of them. And so this was my chance to read about comics from eras gone by and it was fascinating. And of course, as a child, Having a comic that is huge, that is double the size of your normal comic, was so impressive. And when they were done well, as uh, the Batman one was that we're going to be talking about, they were just so impressive. And, and they featured artwork at a grand size, and they featured all this extra material. And they really, both DC and Marvel especially, really pulled out the stops. So this is this is a format that I just hold so near and dear to my heart. I've always wanted to talk about it. Uh, we've Mention them briefly on the Fire and Water podcast and, and some other interviews, other podcasts I've done here and there. But I've always wanted to devote a whole show to them. And so I figured, you know, now's the time. And the reason I say now's the time is because, you know, obviously this will be a nostalgia-drenched show. We're talking about comics from the 70s mostly, things that I remembered being uh, great as a kid. And we're going to be going back and going over all that. But it's a good time because now, in some ways, the treasuries are coming back. Uh, in 2016, uh, this year, Marvel released its first new treasury edition in over 30 years, Spidey Number 1, which was a reprint of, I think, the first six issues of the Spidey comic. And it was so exciting because, as I said, this was a format that Marvel has not done in over 30 years. And, and here it was, Spider-Man, back as a, as a, in a treasury edition. It was so amazing. And I'm very happy to hear that they are going to be doing more. They have at least two more treasuries 
uh, scheduled uh, for next year. One of them is Guardians of the Galaxy, and another one is uh, Women Superheroes. That's the theme. And so uh, it feels like Marvel is, is creeping back into that world, which is great. And, of course, there are other companies that have, that have started doing them. We'll get to that in a moment. So, you know, I, as much as this show is going to be looking back, I think we're going to also have a chance to look forward because uh, Marvel is doing them again, and it's, it's a huge thing. So speaking of uh, sort of Treasury Comics – uh, part of the reason, you know, that I wanted to do this was because I have a site, treasurycomics.com. It was the first website I ever created, really, that was sort of a fan thing. It was something where uh, in the early aughts, uh, I ended up going freelance. I was working for myself, and I decided, well, I have a lot more free time than I used to. So let me do some of these projects I've always wanted to do, and one of them is treasurycomics.com. And while the site is in desperate need of an upgrade in terms of its uh, – it's HTML. <laughs> the labor of love, I think, is what is what comes across. And so you can go visit it at treasurycomics.com. We'll have the link in the show notes, of course. And it features all the treasuries up to that date. There are some new ones, I guess. Like I said, it needs some updating. But um, it, it was the first set I created, and I still keep it going, jeez, uh, 12 years or 13 years later. So uh, you'll see when you go to the main page that there is a quote there right at the top. It says, hands down, my favorite form of entertainment that comics ever provided, Alex Ross. And I can't argue with that. Uh, I do want to give you a little bit of brief history of the treasuries for any of you who are not familiar with them. Because like I said, this is a sort of new format. It's, you know, it's been gone for a long time. Now it's back. So a lot of people probably aren't familiar with it. A treasury comic, in my opinion is any comic uh, that is basically oversized. And I don't mean in terms of page count. I mean in terms of literal size. The average comic book is something like 9 by 7 or something. I should know that offhand. Uh, and then, of course, at the magazine format, they're 8.5 by 11. So anything bigger than that, 9 by 12, 10 by, thir- 10 by 13 is really the classic format that most people think of when they think of a treasury comic. But I would say any oversized comic is, to me, a, a treasury. The uh, series DC did a couple of years ago, Wednesday Comics, which was in a, a newspaper format. I count those as treasuries because they're, they're meant to be looked at big. And so, to me, the bigness is, is what counts. I mean, uh, back in the mid-2000s, KISS put out a, a treasury comic that measures something like 20 by 30. I mean, you can create weather patterns with this thing. That's a treasury comic, even though it's way bigger than any other book. And they've been making treasuries in comics since the 30s. The first DC comics ever published, New Fun Comics, was in the treasury format. It was 10 by 15 because, of course, they were reprinting newspaper strips. The original comics were not a new material. They were reprinted uh, newspaper strips. And so they just reprinted them at the size the newspapers were done, which was 10 by 15, because that's the format of the Sunday funnies. Uh, it was only a, only a couple of years later that the comics started to shrink and you know basically established the format from then on. But so, but treasury comics have been with us this whole time, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. But of course, most people that are familiar with them, you're really talking about one thing. And you're talking about the comics published by DC and Marvel from the 70s through the 80s, basically 1972 to around 1982. That's pretty much when both companies started and when both companies gave up the ghost. There are different reasons as to why the treasuries went out of business. Nobody really exactly knows. Part of it is, of course, just literally sales dwindled on them. If they kept selling, they would have kept doing them. I think that's mostly because by the early 80s, the comic shops had sort of really taken over and fans were interested in having mint condition copies of their books. And the treasuries are notoriously hard to store. They don't fit in comic boxes. They generally don't make bags and boards for them, so you have to like put them on a bookshelf. And 
they're they're easily damaged. Uh, if you go to a Comic Con and you see somebody selling Treasury editions, it's hard to find them in mint condition because they're just so big and they're generally so easily damaged. So I think that's part of the reason they they went out of they went out of business, and maybe that's why the digest took over because they were a lot lot easier to keep in, in mint condition. But most people, when they think of a Treasury comic, they're thinking about those books. DC had a main series, a limited collector's edition, uh, which featured. Uh, initially reprints and then all this bonus material to fill out the books, which is one of the reasons I love them so much. They eventually moved on to new material. Marvel had their series, Marvel Treasury Edition. They did one-offs and specials here and there. They did the Star Wars Treasuries, which were hugely successful. Both Marvel and DC knew that they had to try and increase their comics audiences. Comic sales were dying in in the mid-'70s. They were slowing down. So they were trying to give the audiences something they had never seen before, and the Treasuries were one of the things they tried. And they tried to make the format special. The first ever... DC and Marvel team-up was Superman versus Spider-Man done as a treasury edition. The first time DC and Marvel ever co-published a book, which was the Wizard of Oz adaptation, done as a treasury edition. Batman versus Hulk, done as a treasury edition. So this was stuff that, you know, when they wanted to suggest it was a special, this was big, this was something eventful. They did it as a treasury edition. DC had the famous first editions, which were large size reprints of classic books from their their Golden Age, Action Number One, Detective Twenty Seven, Flash Comics Number One. So it was it, it just had that feeling. And they used to run these great ads in the books for the treasuries. You know, wait till you've seen this because you demanded it. The Bible in a treasury format. I don't know who demanded that, but there it was. And these were also books that you could get as back issues. And that was kind of memorable because, you know, famously, up until comic shops, once a comic book left the newsstand, it was gone forever. You never found it again. But DC and Marvel kept back issues of their treasuries. You could buy old treasuries through them directly. You used to have those ads saying, hey, did you miss the Captain America salutes the Bicentennial? Well, you can still get it for $1.50. And again, it was just sort of a, a really special thing. And so this format is just so beloved to me. Even the ones I didn't have as a kid, I've gone back and collected them. There have been other companies that tried one-offs. Archie did one in the late 60s. Whitman did one. It was an adaptation of King Kong. You can see all this stuff uh, on the site, treasurycomics.com. And there I also have interviews with people that worked on the treasuries or worked on material that did the treasuries. The treasuries did do a, a brief comeback in the late 90s, uh, thanks to the aforementioned Alex Ross and Paul Dini. They did a series of painted books. And these were done as treasuries basically because Alex Ross had the commercial heft to get them done. I'm sure DC was not thrilled that he wanted to do them at that size, but that's how he wanted to do it. And, and he had the uh, the pull to get them done. And there were a bunch of them. There was a Superman, Peace on Earth, Batman, War on Crime, Shazam, Power of Hope, Wonder Woman, Spirit of Truth, followed by Secret Origins, and then the, the Coup de Gras, which was Justice League, Liberty, and Justice. And I love those books to death. I think they're just beautiful. And I was uh, combined with the fact that they did a JLA one, Heaven's Ladder, and then uh, the uh, Superman meets Fantastic Four. Those were all done around the same time. And I really hoped that this meant that DC was bringing back the treasuries. Fortunately, it didn't quite work out that way. After those books, DC stopped doing them, and they've never done a treasury since. And in fact, there was a special produced in the late 2000s called the uh, it was Zatanna and Black Canary team up, Power of Fishnets, and Paul Dini jokes about doing that book as a treasury in the interview portion of the Secret Origins treasury. He literally says, "We're tired. We don't want to do anymore. We've we've done our bit. Unless, of course, DC wants to do a Zatanna Black Canary team up, then I'll do it." And lo and behold, a couple years later, there was the book done in, in a regular format. So I have to think that that was an idea that Paul Dini wanted to do that DC just was not willing to to do in the treasury format. So. DC isn't doing them anymore. Marvel now is. I'm hoping 
that DC will will change that, change their mind, and go back to doing it. But even if they don't, we'll still have a lot of fun talking about uh, the books uh, that do exist because, like I said, I love them, and they reprinted a lot of great material, and it's going to be a lot of fun talking about it. So just before we get to Dan, one other thing. This show is going to be an occasional podcast. I know I said that when I started Pod Dylan. Pod Dylan was supposed to be something I did every so often, but it ended up being like a weekly show. Treasury is really going to be an occasional podcast. I just don't have the room in my schedule to add another show, and I want to make sure this show doesn't become a slog, you know, where it's like I have to do it every week. It's It's something that I do with a lot of energy because they deserve it. These books deserve it. And so I'm going to do this occasionally. This show will run on Saturdays. It will run in the place of Pod Dylan on the weeks that Pod Dylan has off. So this will be just an occasional show, uh, but I hope you like it. I hope you enjoy it. I hope that you, uh, if you have suggestions or you want to talk about the treasuries, please come to the website, which is firewaterpodcast.com. We'll talk about all this at the end of the interview with Dan. So, so uh, but without further ado, Let's just get right to it. We're going to run a couple of commercial promos for some other great podcasts. And then when we come back, we're going to talk to my pal, Dan Greenfield, editor of 13dimension.com, to discuss limited collector edition number C-37, Batman, the all-villains issue. Stay tuned. It's midnight, the podcasting hour. Hello, listeners. It's your friend, PJ Frightful. That's PJ, as in podcast jockey, and I'm dropping dreadful new episodes every two weeks. When the clock strikes midnight, the podcasting hour shines a candle on the dark corners of DC Comics. Those supernatural sagas of Swamp Thing, Dead Man, The Spectre, and more. The podcasting hour. It's a rotating anthology series boasting the terrifying talents of Ryan Daly, Rob Kelly, Paul Hicks, Ben Avery, Doug Zavisha, and other unfortunate souls. Prepare for the unexpected, open a doorway to nightmare, and enter the houses of mystery and secrets. The moon is full, and the dark spirits are rising. For it's midnight, the podcasting hour. Coming this Halloween, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beware. Hi, I'm Kyle Benning, and I love comics. In fact, I love them so much that I ramble on about them on a number of podcasts, all on one feed, found under the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun banner. I talk about comics with extra page counts, like Treasury Comics, Prestige Format Books, DC's Dollar Comics, Marvel's Giant Size Specials and King Size Annuals, and much, much more. I also love to talk about DC's Christ on Multiple Earth crossovers, free comics from Special Promos, Free Comic Book Day, Star Wars, My Life as a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan, random comic book back issues, and many other elements of geek culture that happen to strike my fancy. There's new content usually dropping at least once a week, and it's all found on one feed. You can subscribe via iTunes. Just search for King Size Comics Giant Size Fun in the iTunes Store or podcast app on your iPhone. Otherwise, you can follow the podcast at the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun blog headquarters, available at www.kingsizecomicsgiantsizefun.blogspot.com. That's all one word, King Size Comics Giant Size Fun.blogspot.com. Or follow on Facebook by simply searching for King Size Comics Giant Size Fun. So for snappy review and discussions on comics, new and old, usually done from the front seat of my car or my lunch break at work, 
Check out King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun. So we're here to talk about the limited collector's edition number C-37, Batman, the special all-villain issue. Uh, and uh, Dan, how awesome a cover is this by Jim Apera? It is. It's one of the great Batman covers ever. In fact, whenever at the site I do like a 13 covers, you know, Bronze Age Batman, I have to resist putting this on there every time <laughs> because it's so great. And, it, and, it's, and it's not just the design and the layout, the interplay between the, the, the trade dress, the, all the lettering and the design and the coloring, the choice of purple, that deep purple that kind of lightens as it approaches Batman the four different bat signals, the everything about this is great. And it really, really pops. Um, it's Jim Aparo, of course. Um, and it's also interesting to me that, and I can't figure out which came first, but the, the, the design, and the, it's funny too, uh, when you hear me say it, that the design is very similar to a Neil Adams design from the back of a Power Records album cover. Um, the, the album, the Power Records album that was a compilation of four different stories that has Batman swooping in with all the other villains waiting for him. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. You, you flip it over and it's a, it's basically this layout only this one's better. <laughs> and, and people don't usually say that when you're comparing something with a Neil Adams version, but it's better. And it's, it's, I, I think it has everything to do with the four different villains and and just the, the 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 drama of the way this cover comes off. Yeah, I mean, it really does have like all the images. It's got the signals, and it's Batman on a rooftop, and as you said, the purple sky. You've got Gotham in the background. It's just it's so an iconic Batman cover. It's yeah. just it's just classic. So yeah, this is absolutely one of the best, and I'm so glad that they got Jim Aparo to do it because it's it's such a beautiful cover. Uh, this uh, collector's edition went on sale May eighth. 1975. Uh, I remember having it when I was a kid, so I don't think I would have remembered anything at, at that at that age. I was only four in 1975, so maybe I got this later on. These these books tended to hang around as opposed to regular comics, so maybe I picked it up, you know, a couple of months later or a year later or something. Because I remember having this as a kid, but I certainly didn't get it off the stands at the time. How can you resist it? I mean. Yeah, you know, good lord, <laughs> it's just so I fantastic. Don't, I don't remember when I got it. I do know I got it when it came out, or roughly that period, seventy five, seventy six. Because at that age, I was about, you know, uh, I seventy five. I would have been eight years old. So I mean, this was in my wheelhouse, and I remember this particular issue because it was it was one of my bibles as a kid, as far as reading Batman. This was one of the main things that I just went back over and over and over and over. And the thing that, that jumps out at me, there was always one thing that kind of bothered me because at that age, my, my primary influence on the, you know, with, as far as Batman was concerned was the Adam West TV show. And it was really just as I was really kind of becoming as much a comic book fan as I was a, a, an actual quote unquote Batman fan overall, but I had the TV show, I had my Migos and I had my comics and this was one of the big ones. But it always bugged me that the fourth villain was Two-Face as opposed to the Riddler. Mm -hmm. Because I always, in my mind, it was always supposed to be Joker, Catwoman, Penguin, Riddler. And this was one of my earliest, this and Joker number one, which also featured Two-Face. And came out almost at the same time as this issue, this, this uh, treasury, was the sense that Two-Face was something special. Because growing up as a little kid, 
there was no Two Face as far as I was. I didn't know Two Face. Two right. Face wasn't on the TV show, so he was to me this kind of obscure character. When I saw him on the cover here and in Joker number one, it was like, okay, who's this guy? And then of course, subsequently, we find out that he's a major player. Yes. Yeah. It's it's interesting that uh, they chose to not have a Riddler story in this book at all, considering. Yeah, I mean the the book is all other than the um, the, uh, uh, the the special features. The stories are all golden age. Yep. I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but I would have loved to have seen like the Joker's, I mean the Riddler's original golden age story, his origin story in this size, in color, because when I the only other version of of that story that I had as a kid was the one in the book, the '30s to the '70s. Ah, right. right. Where they where they printed that, but it was in black and white. So I would have loved to have had that been the fourth. So I don't know why they, they chose Two-Face. Um, I, in retrospect, I'm certainly glad that they did. But I, I, you know, the, the, to me, the Riddler is glaring by its omission. Yeah. Oh, well. He, he, you know, he can't have everything. He can't have everything. So, so yeah. So the inside cover uh, it features a nice piece by Nick Cardi, uh, and that's the table of contents. I'm going to assume that, that's, that this is not original, that this is probably taken from a Brave and the Bold cover or something that Nick Cardi did. I'm not familiar with this particular drawing. It's 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 from, um, there was a Batman Spectacular a couple of years before, you know, they had those 100-page 100, 100 Super Spectaculars that weren't necessarily part of the regular title run. They were like special issues. They kind of predated the, um, the, uh, the Treasuries. This was a, there was one that was Batman, and this cover is from that, or that okay. that's from that cover. Yeah. Now I know. I never learned that. I learned something new. We're only a couple minutes into the show. Perfect. So, <laughs> okay. So the first story. Uh, the, so these are all reprints from the Golden Age, as Dan just said. The first story is called the Cross Country Crimes. Uh, it is from Batman number eight, written by Bill Finger, drawn by Bob Kane and Jerry Robinson, and the story is. During a ceremony in Washington meant to honor Batman and Robin, the Joker attempts an assassination which succeeds in killing only a government official. This kicks off a cross-country chase with the Joker leaving a series of clues for the dynamic duo, telling them what state the Joker will be in next. Batman gets the jump on the clown prince of crime when he figures out that the fiend is using the states to spell out his name, leading to his capture in, of course, Rhode Island. So, <laughs> so uh, Dan, what did you think of this story? I love this story. Um, this is one of the great Joker um, uh, Golden Age stories, and there are a couple of things that I particularly love about it. One, it's dark. I mean, there, there, there are a couple. Of, first off, I like you know I grew up in New Jersey, so having New Jersey pop up is one of the. <laughs> I love that. That was great. But it's it's also it's really dark, and a really good example of that early Joker who was a homicidal maniac. He was a mass murderer, and. I still, to this day, when I'm driving down a dark road, um, you know, if it's like a stormy weather or I can't really see very well, it'll always flash in my mind that panel where the Joker is painting the line so that the traffic line actually goes, makes this bus, a bus, go off a cliff. <laughs> everybody on board. And I just remember at the time that being this really scary idea. And it's true. I mean, that would be an awful thing that you're driving along and you're following the line. And the next thing you know, you're going off the cliff because some maniac decided to repaint it. It's so twisted and it's, it's so effective that, like I said, 40 some odd years later, it stayed with me. 
Yeah, the the shot on no pun intended on page two of the Joker on the rooftop with the rifle. Yeah, it's just really creepy because he's yeah. generally we haven't released. Even though, I mean, I'm familiar with him. Obviously, he's a homicidal maniac, but yeah. like he's not usually that hands on. No, uh, you know, but he's out there like Charles Starkweather with a rifle, just <laughs> shooting people. It's like, oh my god, it's just really hor- horrific. Now, I mean, artwork wise, one of the nice things we already get just three pages in. We oh. get we get one of the great things about these treasuries because the page three is yeah. a full page of the Joker with his arms outstretched and he's he's yeah. happy he's he's thrilled with his murderous country and it you know to seeing it at the treasury size is yeah. one of the great things that makes me love these this format and why I'm even doing this show because this had a huge impression on me as a kid just that image is so beautiful of him just looking like a complete and utter maniac as he's just he's railing to the heavens he's so happy that he's causing all this chaos. And, and also the, the touches that make it indelibly golden age too, the circular panels, yep. the, and the, the, act, the fact that they give you little, a little guide on how to read the page, which actually sometimes they should, I wish they would do a little bit more now with some of the crowded uh, layouts that you sometimes see. You get a little one by the first one, a little number two, so that you can follow along, but it also gives you, but it's, it's at the same time, it's unobtrusive. But even the thing where you have the, the, the panel of, with the use of the lettering, the Joker was last seen robbing, and you're just showing the idea that it's going from, you know, it's going over the radio, and it's going across the country, and it's, or at least this distance. You get a great shot of the Batmobile, uh, and, and the long legs. It, it, it's so perfectly framed. I love it. I like. I do like in the other and the page two. It says the president himself tonight orders the nation's police force to bring in the Joker. I yes. like the idea of FDR getting involved with the Joker. Yes. <laughs> yes. and it is his silhouette too. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, and before we before we move off of this, I have to mention one last thing. Uh, there is the panel on page twelve. The whole way that the, the Batman traps Joker is that he yes. plants a newspaper story. Yes, uh, and he he pr- pretends to be a prince. Prince Namtab, yes, who is going to have a diamond at uh, Rhode Island. So of course the Joker shows up to to grab the diamond, and waiting for him is Batman. And here's the panel that just has influenced my life to this day. It's yes. Joker says, "You, the Batman," and Batman goes, "Also I, Namtab, Batman reversed." Yes. I, I always loved that it because it's like, Batman, you didn't have to do that. You could have just used any name. You didn't have to be clever. In fact, you were maybe risking getting caught by using your name backwards. And that has always charmed me. And that is why my illustration site is called Namtab.com. It is why my email address has been Namtab for the past 20 years. I have always – that has been that has stuck with me my entire life. And it comes from this panel being seen for the first time in this treasury. See, now, I knew that this is the reason you picked this, this treasury first to kick off this podcast because I knew, I was like, the NAMTAD thing is, yeah. is the reason this is all coming together because I remember the first time when you and I first met, uh, and, and for your listeners, we've never actually met face-to-face, you know, only through uh, this and only through, uh, through email. When I saw your email for the first time, I went, ah, shit, you got to be kidding me. I knew immediately where it was from. I was like, oh, that is awesome. I said, this guy is a kindred spirit. (laughs) 
Yeah, it is really very influential. I just love that. I just love that Batman thinks he's being clever, and it's yep. the opposite of being clever. It's like Batman, right. you really exactly. risked getting caught by the Joker going, "Hey, wait a minute, uh, hold on." You know, I just, I just love that entirely. So, so yeah, it's it's a terrific story. So we're gonna move right on to the second one, which is the Penguin. Uh, this story is the Blackbird of Banditry from Batman number forty three, again written by Bill Finger, drawn by Jim Mooney. Uh, the Penguin, frustrated that other Bat villains are getting all the headlines, starts a series of crimes based on birds from famous novels. After saving Robin from a death trap, our heroes confront the pudgy, pudgy pilferer in his giant penguin plane. They subdue him, and it ends with uh, Batman sort of teasing Penguin at the end, talking about, well, you forgot to mention the raven from Poe, which is, of course, the raven nevermore. And it, it kind of ends with a wah-wah sort of thing at the end. <laughs> so uh, what, did you, what did you think of this one? It's a fine, you know, it's all right. I mean, I, you know, the, the, I only really kind of learned to appreciate the penguin more as an adult than, than as a kid. The penguin was never my favorite. And in looking at back at this one in retrospect, and I, and I would have to check, but there are elements in here. I'm guessing that, that were, um, that might've influenced the TV show itself. Um, the, the, the big banquet at the beginning where they collect all this money and they bring in the pie and the pot and the birds fly out. That sequence was actually used in one of the penguin episodes, only instead of it being birds flying out, it was a girl who popped out of a cake. Right. Um, also, of course, them fighting like pirates on the, on the top of the pirate ship uh, kind of recalls the movie where they're fighting in a much similar fashion. Plus you also have, instead of a penguin sub, you've got a penguin blimp. Which just showed up in the uh, Batman animated movie. Actually, there's a big penguin blimp that looks very much like this one. Um, so I think it was one of those stories that might have been reprinted in an earlier annual or or had popped up somewhere. Uh, but other than that, you know, it is what it is. It's a penguin story from the golden age, and it's got its moments. And other than that, you know, whatever. Yeah, I, I never was a huge fan of, of the Penguin. I think when he's been done well, I liked him on the TV show. Yeah. There's that one great Batman cover by Don Newton where Batman is bursting through a window and he's, he's, his face is covered in shadow and the Penguin is like got a handful of jewels. Like that's like a great Penguin image. But right. I, I, yeah, I've never was a huge fan of this character. And part of it is moments like this. And this is the page I'm going to get to. Page eight of the story. They, Batman and Robin have captured the Penguin, and he says, Ah, well, the fortunes of war, egad, my nerves on the edge. Do you mind if I smoke my umbrella pipe? And yeah. Batman says, I'll look over it first. And he says, Satisfied, the pipe isn't a booby trap that Batman allows the Penguin to fill with tobacco. Right. So Penguin lights it, and coming out of the, uh, the Penguin, uh, coming out of the uh, pipe is a bunch of popcorn. Yeah. And it gets in Batman's face enough that it allows, Batman, that allows the Penguin time to smack them over the heads and knock them out. Now, to me, it's like I don't want a villain that in this story makes Batman look like an idiot. <laughs> you know? I mean, in the first story, you've got a villain who is mowing people down with a rifle from a rooftop and painting, you know, uh, high, highway signs so he kills a bunch of children on a bus. The Penguin is, is using popcorn to yeah. do Batman. I just, like, I don't want to see Batman like that. And it's sort of the Penguin is the reason for it. So, yeah, I, this, this, I, I like this story, but it's definitely my least favorite of, of the bunch. Yeah, how they get out of the trap I like with, with Batman using the umbrella as a bow and arrow. That's a good bit, yeah. And I like, and I, I do really like the climactic fight on a blimp because it's very cinematic. Yes. And it, and it does play well in the format. You know, it's the, you, get, you do get that sense of scope and the sense of drama and also that sense of, of again, the golden age is that these, these, you know, these henchmen fall off the blimp. You don't know if they survive and Batman's like, yeah, see you later. There's never any, there's none of that, 
Batman was a little bit more fast and loose with whether the bad guys uh, were killed back in those days <laughs> than, than he became later. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, now we're going to move on to the third story, and this is the moment. This is the thing. This is the content that made me fall in love with this book and made me love Treasuries because it is not a reprint of the comic. It is a reprint from a, Sunday, a series of Sunday supplements from the Batman newspaper strip. And it is Batman versus Two-Face, except it is a Two-Face that is completely unfamiliar with anyone who read comics. Because here, Two-Face is not Harvey Dent. He is an actor named uh, Harvey Apollo. And he has a similar origin in that he gets a handful of uh, face full of acid from the guy he's testifying against. And, of course, that leaves him scarred. And it drives his he – goes, he goes all wonky after that. He gets the coin. And he scars it up, and he decides to become a criminal, and he turns into Two-Face. And then it's the Two-Face that we all recognize. But this is a whole adventure that you know I was never familiar with. I've never seen Batman and Robin, Batman and Robin face off with uh, Two-Face back and forth. Um, now, we're gonna, there's a, a middle section where there's the, 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 the pinups that's in the middle of the story. We're going to skip ahead and then go back sure. and finish up the Two-Face story. So it has this whole thing where... Two-Face flips a coin to decide whether to kill Batman or Robin, and it lands on an edge, standing straight up, so there's no choice to be made. There's a great sequence of Batman and Robin fooling the fooling Two-Face into thinking they've killed him. The whole thing ends at a movie theater with Two-Face projecting himself onto the screen where he decides to hold up the entire audience. And the drive-in theater. The drive-in theater. It ends with, please remain seated. This is a hold-up. It ends with Two-Face running across the top of the screen onto a high wire. He slips on the coin and ends up hanging himself to death. And the final panel is Two-Face laying there dead over the screen. Now, this story when I was a kid made my brain hurt because I was like, (laughs) who is this? Who is this guy? And how is Two-Face dead? Two-Face isn't dead. How is he dead here? I didn't understand that this was not a comic book. That this was I don't think at the time I even knew there ever was a Batman newspaper strip. So this whole thing just could not I could not understand it, but I loved it. I think the artwork is Charles Paris, I believe. I don't know that for sure. But man, is it beautiful. And it is my fa- is one of my favorite things the Treasuries have ever done. I love that they went out of their way to find this and put it in as opposed to just running another comic book. I, I am so in love with this sequence. And I still love it to this day. Well, I think the clue about its inclusion is because the editor of the of the of the uh, of the of the Treasury was E. Nelson Bridwell, sure, right. who, who was you know considered the encyclopedia of DC history at the time. And he probably, I mean, there were certainly stories they could have included. Now, of course, going back to Two Face, you know, Two Face was one of those villains who had a long gap in his publishing history. Um, you know, there. The, 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 it's, it's usually uh, uh, blamed on the comics code because he was too horrifying and, you know, he just kind of went away, and bef- you know, before he was brought back briefly in the Silver Age in a world's finest uh, issue or a two-part story. But then really for real by, you know, as, it, as a, you know, obviously uh, Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill in Batman 234. But his, his exclusion from the, from the TV show you know, there were all these elements that, that Two-Face was kind of this secondary character until he, you know, thanks to, you know, books like this and other things that, you know, came back and, and became part of the, the A-list. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, they certainly had other choices in the Golden Age, but this might be the best Two-Face story of the Golden Age, regardless of its format. Um, it, it, what I like about it, since it's all Sunday strips, it carries forward without those single daily strips that slow things down where right. everything, 
where the pacing is always really wonky when you read it all at once. It's, that's not this way at all. You don't get any splash pages because of the format, but the, it really, really moves. The, the, the panels are packed. You get some great backgrounds. You get some great perspectives. Um, Two-Face is genuinely scary, particularly there are a couple of moments that, that always re I remember. One, of course, uh, uh, you know, the, the idea that's been repeated many times where you get that kind of uh, that, that widescreen panel of him sitting in his, his lair where on page uh, what's uh, three of the story where on the left side it's his good side and the right side it's the bad side and it's like <laughs> yeah, on the left side the office is very nice and the right side it's, it's awful and that's something that's been done many times over. I don't know if this is the first time or not but it's particularly effective here uh, when he's saved by the fact that the that the he's shot but the uh, coin takes the bullet so he mm -hmm. survives the idea of the coin landing on its side which is another thing that was done many times over but then yeah that that scene at the at the drive-in and there's that one panel when you look on pe on page eight and that panel one two three four five six and you see the shot of two face he's talking to the people on this you know on this film but it's like this upshot yeah. of it. it's scary it's really it's like wow that is really met and they they repeat it on the next you know in the, in the final uh, page uh, and then of course like you say the, the part where he's hanging he falls down into the wires and he's hanging but it's not only that it's also the 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 visual double entendres that you get two images of two face yep. you get him plus his shadow right behind it it's haunting. And you know, people people look back at the Golden Age and the Silver Age and they compare it to comics today. And it's just a different way of, of telling stories. It was so much simpler then, but it was in some ways just as uh, just as effective, if not more so, because of the simplicity of what they were doing. Yeah, and I also love that Batman kind of has a pithy bonbon at the end where he yes. says, those wires, he saved the state a hanging. Oh, boy. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> yeah. well two yeah. guys had a proper yeah. exit. Well, for yeah. an audience, <laughs> Batman's just like, oh well, let's that's that's Sunday. Let's let's go, let's go back to the let's go back to the mansion and see what Alfred has for dinner, Robin. Like, yeah, well, really. is anybody well, going to yeah, clean up the corpse? Uh, right. Anybody going to get this or what? Yeah. Oh, it, I just love this thing to death. Oh, yeah, and, and, and the Harvey Apollo part never really, you know, it it never really because I didn't have that grounding in Two Face when I read it. It never stayed with me that it wasn't Harvey Dent. I mean, it, right. later on, I was like, when I read, it, I was like, what, what, I don't know why they made the change. I don't know why they made the change for the for the Sunday strip anyway. Why they would do that? Um, because the original Harvey Dent story is so compelling. But they do have, you know, all throughout this, there are references to him being an actor. And at the end, of course, the, the fitting ending of him at a, at a movie theater. Yeah. Oh, it's just, I just love it. I just, I just, every time I see it, this thing just makes me smile. I just love this thing so bad. So, yeah, it's a terrific, it's a terrific additional feature to the book. I'm just so glad whoever put this together thought, thought to do it. So now we're going to jump back a little bit because we sort of skipped over it, is the centerfold, because these things always had great centerfolds. Uh, again, this is why I love these treasuries. They, they went for the extra effort. The centerfold here is the secrets of the Batcave. And here we get a diorama of the full-on Batcave as it looks underneath Wayne Manor. And we see the lab, the elevator, the workshop, the trophy room, the computerized crime file, the repair shop, the ramp that leads outside the mountain featuring the Bat plane and the Bat helicopter, the mooring for the Bat boat. I mean, this, this I just, I 
dig all this stuff. It's just so fun to see it and it full on like this of how it all works. Well, the, what's what's great about this is again, it's it it also uses the the format really really well because this is also a reprint. This is reprinted from Batman number I think two hundred three. Oh wow, I didn't even know that. Okay. Yeah, where where it first where it first pops up, um, it was you know in the, in the late sixties, um, every fifth or sixth Batman issue was mostly reprints with one fresh story up front, and this was from that that issue. It was originally called Secrets of the Batcave, nineteen sixty eight, and so they dropped the sixty eight for this and just reprinted it, and. What I was saying earlier that this was one of my Bibles as a child because of this. This was one of the main reasons was these this these two spreads where you have the Batmobile, which look which was you know they changed the Batmobile in the comics to look more like the George Barris TV Batmobile, but they still left it unique enough so that it wasn't exactly the same, but it's very close. But also just. All, even the, the smart things like the fact that tubes eject smoke to, to give cloudy effect and conceal takeoff. Yeah. Making the point that he has a bat plane um, when you turn the page, and I didn't understand what vertical takeoff and landing meant at the time, but what it is is an explanation of why he doesn't need a runway. Right. Um, the trophy room, the underground stream. And this is the kind of thing that I would look at and I would imagine in my mind when I was playing with my Mego Batcave. This was all like of a piece. Um, you also have on the, the, the utility belt used to taunt me. The, <laughs> the, the, this sequence, you know, first off, I was like, I want to know more about what was in Robin's utility belt, but I assumed it was just very similar, just in pouches. But you know, not only just the fact that, you know, how could he possibly fit everything in the, in, in those little, those little tubes, but it, you know, when I, so wanted a utility belt when I was when I was a kid that I actually made my own. I took a white belt that was like one of these 1970s belts that had rings all the way around the leather belt, and it was three pronged. So you had like three rings all the way around, and it was a white belt, very 1975. So I took a bunch of of Kodak uh, photo uh, film boxes, and I punched holes in the back and took twist ties. And put all of these boxes around the belt and tied them with the twist tie, so I could have my own. And, and, <laughs> yeah, and kids I made, are so it, industrious. <laughs> yeah, well, if they, the, the thing that it was, it wasn't Fuji because Fuji was a green box. It had to be Kodak because Kodak was a yellow of box. Of course, sure. So I used to run around the house with with it, and and part of the reason was because seeing this, I needed to have a utility belt. Interesting. Now, so that, now I converted uh, the stairwell to our basement. Uh, I actually converted that to a bat cave, and I used a crayon, and I drew all sorts of bat equipment on the front, like the you know the steps as they were over my head and descending down. So I created all of the bat computer stuff. Oh, that's and great! That's why I pretended that was the bat because it was dark, you know, and and sort of uh, cloaked because of the way it was built. It was sort of closed off, and so you could only get there from one thing, and there was a a little light bulb, and so and those those crayon drawings are still there. Really? And to this day, I, I, we moved into that house in 1979. My parents still live there. And just a couple of months ago, my mother happened to be under the stairwell, and she discovered that for the first time. Oh, said, really? She's like, did you draw all that stuff? I was like, yeah, Ma, I did it last week. No, I said, yeah, I did. It's, been there. <laughs> it's been there since like 1981. What are you doing? She just discovered it. But it's like I had, I have like a button for when you press the gas, and it's like the fire. Th all, it was all this crazy Batman stuff. And it was gigs. Yeah, I loved all this detail. I loved yeah. knowing that Batman had a mini camera, that he had right. little grenades, all of this stuff. It's just so much fun.
even a power source. There's a, there's, so that everything will work. He's got this this little, you know, this explains why some of the things are, you know, have the energy they need to uh, to actually work. Yeah, uh, it's just so much fun. So, uh, and then, so then the next story is uh, another one from the comics. This is called. The Riddle of the Human Scarecrow. This is the debut of the Scarecrow from World's Finest Comics number three, written by Bill Finger, drawn by Bob Kane and Jerry Robinson. Uh, this is Professor Jonathan Crane, tired of being looked down upon by his colleagues for his shabby appearance, assumes the identity of the Scarecrow, turning to crime to earn extra money. He sets himself up as a racketeer, but when he murders someone in the process, Batman and Robin get involved. After an initial fight, the Scarecrow escapes and continues his crime wave. Eventually, though, Batman apprehends him with the help of Robin and a well-placed teeter-totter board. From jail, Crane promises to return to crime one day. So what do you think of this one? You know, it's, it's interesting because, again, this was – this I'm 99% certain was my first Scarecrow story also. And again, another villain that was never on the show. And I don't mean to keep going back to the show, but other than it's the, it's the context in which I read this. It was and, – and because it was so close, again, when it came out – and, and I was really, this was during those formative years uh, from 1972 when I really started to, around that time is when I really, my earliest memories of, of Batman and all of that stuff came around 72, 73, and that transition of moving from the show to comics. This was very much a part of that. So again, the Scarecrow was kind of this weird thing to me. I was like, he's not on the show, so is he, a, you know, how big a deal is he supposed to be? And again, it was one of those moments where in reading it, I was thinking, well, where's the Riddler? Why do we have the Scarecrow? Why don't we have the Riddler? So I always kind of resented the Scarecrow for that. Um, but I think the story is good. It's, it's also interesting to read it, um, com- you know, now versus then. Um, I like a lot of the imagery of it. You get a lot of really good ideas of, of his height and his gawkiness. Like on page three, the lower right-hand um, panel where he's got these really long legs and you, you do get this sense of, of him being this kind of menacing figure but also awkward and strange. But the thing is, is that he's not really the, the, the scarecrow we know in the sense that he's not like, he's into fear and all of that, but he doesn't have, he's not torturing people with nightmares. He's right. basically up to villains and going, boom! Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, he's, and he's basically almost like a scary hitman. Like, I'm going to scare him for you if you pay me. Yep. And so you can get one over on that guy if you hire me. So he's more like a weird hired gun than a criminal mastermind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've always loved the Scarecrow. Uh, like you, I was sort of always wonder why he was on a TV show because I thought it probably would have been pretty easy to do. He's always been yeah. one of my favorites. I was always frustrated that he was never in the initial run of, of movies. But then, of course, by the time I got to Batman and Robin, that's probably a good thing. Right. And yeah. then, of course, Nolan... And I guess it, now that I'm saying it out loud, that probably worked out because that's probably why Nolan used him. Yeah. Because he was a, he was an untapped resource. And, of course, Nolan liked him so much and I guess liked Cillian Murphy as the Scarecrow so much that he's in all three movies. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he's got this running gag and this through line between he's, – he's basically a supporting character all the way through, which, which helps to give those three movies their coherence. Yeah, yeah. It's terrific. Yeah, I, yeah this story – Art-wise, this is a little on the rough side. The, the figures are very stiff, and that's kind of the Bob Kane thing. But it didn't bother me tremendously. Again, when you're a kid, you just sort of accept this. You know, you're just like, okay, that's just what it looks like, and it's fine. And, um, I love the shot of, like, little Jonathan Crane as a boy. Yes. around. Like, he just looks like a little madman. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. He's in, like, little short pants. And he's just I, like, ah! Yeah. I also kind of like the, the sort of the, the – um, the, the, 
the, the undercurrent, the, the class warfare that's also at the heart of his, yeah, yeah. of his origin. You know, the idea that he's, you know, he's a college professor, but he's frowned upon by the snootier members of the staff because yeah. <laughs> he doesn't dress well enough. You know, it's just a really good, you know, you know, fight the power kind of uh, <laughs> origin story. <laughs> he's got economic anxiety. From his- yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. You know, he's, you know, he's the ultimate occupied villain. <laughs> That's great. I haven't thought about that, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's cool. I'm really glad that he's. I, I wonder why he's not on the cover. Like, I, I mean, I guess they had to just do four because the space. Right. But uh, you know, uh, I mean, they had to drop somebody. So I guess they right. figured drop the least famous of the of the villains. So right. uh, after that is a one page puzzle, uh, which is wanted. Batman's most dangerous foes, written by our pal Bob Rosakis. The, yeah. This is another one of these things that really gave me an insight into the world of the comics that I was unfamiliar with. Because again, 1975. I didn't know of any comic stores that that existed. There, there were some, but they were pretty scarce. So, you know, comics that were more than a couple years older or something that was reprinted, I didn't know it. And right. so this has got – you're supposed to find the, the names of Batman villains in the puzzle. And it's right. got all these villains I've never heard of. I remember right. being a kid going, Mr. Roulette? Seahawks? Yeah. <laughs> El Bolo? Who the hell are these people? Like, yeah. you know – so and that's cool. I still love it. You know, I mean, the ver- the copy I have is the same one I had as a kid. So it's not been done. I have this as a scan, and somebody helpfully uh, did the puzzle for me. So thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, it was cool. I just I liked learning this stuff, and I just loved all these bonus features. It's also I like that the the choice of villains. It, it it covers the golden age, the silver age, and goes into the bronze age too. So you have the spook who later you know kind of vanished. He was part of the part of the pun there. But you and you have Ra's al Ghul right, right. and Man Bat, but you have Man Bat is in between Mad Hatter, Mad Hatter and Mirror Man. Yep. Ra's al Ghul is in between Queen Bee and Raven. You know, you so it's just it's just everything. And I love that he did these things. I, I you know I, I interviewed him some time ago and asked him about these puzzles because these were one of my favorite features also of uh, of the comics. And you're right, it was the. Yeah, the reprint because this looks like it was from a, a, an issue of Wanted, uh, which is, was one of my favorite early '70s comic books. Right, uh, the, re- the reprint series. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's where this originally was from or whether this was done for this particular edition. Um, but I, I love those puzzles. Yeah. They're, they're they're great. They're great stuff. So, uh, so the final story is uh, the Lady Rogues from Batman number forty-five, uh, written by William Woolfolk. Drawn by Charles Paris. Uh, Catwoman is incensed that she is left out of a book of famous female rogues. So she sets out on a series of crimes based on these women to prove she is the best slash worst of all. It all comes crashing down, literally, at a live performance of Samson and Delilah, where Batman, in disguise as Samson, lassoes Catwoman. In jail, she receives a visitor, the author of the book that so enraged her. She is floored when she learns that the author, so impressed with Catwoman's exploits, was planning on writing another book about just for her. Yeah. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is. I really like this story. I think it's a lot. Of, it seems very classic Catwoman that her that her her crime rampage is based purely on ego. Well, it's basically the same plot as the Penguin. The Penguin story, yeah. Yeah, and they are both the most vain, or historically they were portrayed at the time anyway as the most vain of the Joker. I mean, the Joker had different kind of motivations, and I guess Two Face's uh, motivation was vanity too. When you think about it. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 and I like the art, you know, the, yep. you know, the, 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 the femme fatale, uh, artwork, um, 
and, and just again, it, it just goes from one set piece to the next set piece. Um, and Batman and Robin are constantly on the move, you know. And of course, the idea of Batman being Samson. I always remember the the, the, the big uh, climax on the page eleven of the story where you have Batman, but it's Samson's head because the rest of his Samson costume has been removed. It's a weird but not, image, <laughs> right? It is, but not his cowl. Or so he still has the Samson makeup on, but it's otherwise Batman's story, which makes you think. If they just basically wanted an excuse to have that image, yep. Um, but it's fun, and of course you do. You get that want want image, uh, you know, of her at the end where she's like, "Oh no! If only you, if only I'd known you were going to write a book about me, I might not have still been a criminal." It's, yeah, yeah. I like that they uh, let her in the jail cell with her costume on. Yes. <laughs> they don't. Yes. You know, they don't do anything. They're just like, just right. throw her in the hooskow. It's fine. Well, it was the holding cell. Remember, well, she, hadn't, she hadn't been convicted yet. So. There you go. There you no prize that. Very good. <laughs> yeah, very good. This is always. This is also my famous. Uh, my famous. My favorite Catwoman costume. I just love it, this original. Is it really? Yeah. I mean, I like as far as the comic book ones. Uh, for me, uh, Darwin Cook. The, that that redo I think is that's is, really good yeah it, yeah is probably the best of them all because I think it it has all the right elements but classically yeah I mean you can't you can't go wrong with this one it is weird in the sense that you know penguin uh, penguins uh, cats are neither purple nor green um, <laughs> but but villains are right. Uh, you know that's code for villain in, in comic books particularly DC comics um, but I, it is weird that it, you know when you think about it that of course she still had to wear a dress. Um, but I, you know, as, and as you'll see as we get to the next page, the, the best Catwoman costume, though, I have to uh, argue with you, is, is Julie Newmar's costume. Uh, well, TV show. yes. You can't, yeah. ar- you can't argue with a costume when you see it on a real live woman. Yes. Uh, and so, yeah, let's get right to it. The inside back cover, not only does it feature the solution to the, to the, pu- to the uh, Batman Foes puzzle, but it has a little feature by Alan Asheron, who was one of the DC woodchucks on Batman's villains from the TV show. And so it's got a shot of Julie Newmar as Catwoman, a shot of uh, Burgess Meredith, Cesar Romero, and Frank Gorshin as Joker, Penguin, and Riddler from the movie. Then a shot of Lee Merriweather as Catwoman. Then George Sanders as Captain Cold, a.k.a. uh, No, it's not Captain Cold, a.k.a. Mr. Freeze. And then uh, you. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, yeah, I, I knew what I was saying. I misspoke. Uh, and then uh, you've got David Wayne as the Mad Hatter. Yeah, I mean, I don't know any teenage boy who was not driven wild by Julie Newmar as Captain. Oh, my God. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. No, she's just amazing. Um, you know, and I, and I think off the top of my head, looking at the, the villains that they used here were only comic book villains that were on the show. I, I mean, there was... I mean, there was false face that was on the show was never really false face, and Clock King was never really Clock King. They were right. really different characters, but these were like the ones that were translated directly from the comics uh, onto the show. So I wonder if that was by design or just because that's the stock pictures that they had lying around the office. <laughs> that's entirely possible. Yeah, I used to love these features. Again, I, I yeah. mean, I'm saying this. I'm going to end up repeating myself on this show a lot, but. It was all these bonus things. And, you know, the Batman TV show was one I grew up on, so it was so neat to see it immersed in the comic. You know, right. like, oh, here, you know, yeah, this is what I've been watching on the TV show, and here they are. And, you know, it almost, just having that shot of Lee Merriweather on a table yeah. laying there in her Catwoman yeah. costume, it's almost like, did the. I, I mean, okay, this, this was in a movie, and it was aired on the TV show, so obviously it was okay for family audiences, but that's right. pretty salacious as things go. Yeah, yeah, she's you know, I mean, it's 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 cheesecake. Yeah, 
It's wonderful. It's a great, great feature. And so the final page of this book and the final feature is on the back cover, which is one of the classic, the DC tabletop dioramas, where they reprint the elements of the cover in two different pieces, and you're supposed to cut them out, and you insert you know, the literal tab A into slot B, and you can make yourself your own little diorama. Now, I did not do this as a kid because I, even as a young age, I did not want to mar my comics like that. I couldn't bring myself to do it. But I think a lot of kids probably did. And there's no doubt it's a fun feature. I, I think I did. See, the, the copy that I have now is not the copy that I had when I was a kid. Um, because at one point I actually sold off my entire collection. Uh, yeah, no, that's a story for another time. Uh, and, then, and then rebuilt my favorite parts of it uh, years later. It's a, a whole other story. Um, I think with this issue, I did, it, I did do it. I, I seem to remember, because in this one, when you look at it also, this is not an easy thing to do. There's a lot of lines here that you have to stay on to make it really work. And I, I just have this memory of, of somehow screwing it up. <laughs> yeah, those little tabs are kind of hard to do. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, there's not a lot of give there. And if yeah. you tear one off, that's the end of it. But it's also, you're supposed to cut around Batman and all the scallops of his cape and all of the... And it's like, man, that's that's a lot of work. Yeah, hard to do with scissors. Yeah, especially with you probably, if you're of the age that you're doing this, with those little green scissors that you had at school. Right, right. Yeah, they're not very sharp. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I actually tried to build one of these later on as a quote-unquote adult. Uh, and I, I managed to do it, but I, I still didn't do it to my satisfaction. So I'm kind of glad that I didn't mar most of my copies with the, by, by doing this. So. Right. But, uh, so, yeah, that's, that's Limited Collector's Edition C37. It's a real winner. <laughs> Yeah. It's just nothing but great features. And the thing what I love about it when I when I step back, it is a Batman primer. You know, other than other than his origin, which it doesn't feature, like this is a great comic to give to a kid who doesn't know much about Batman. It it, it I I look I had um in, in my mind there were three great Batman treasuries. There was this one, there was Batman number one, and there was the Razagul reprint issue, which basically reprinted the four that was actually a much longer story than people sometimes realize but it was the four issues you really needed to read that story the the, the first Razagul story and if you took those three together that was pretty much the best of batman going from 1939 or 1940 because it was batman number 1 up to date mm-hmm. you know you didn't have the silver age so if you had some silver age issues you were fine but this was the highlight I mean, this was, you're right, it's a, it, and that's why I was, and not to be sacrilegious or anything, when I refer to it as, a, you know, one of my Batman Bibles, it really was, because it was, you had, with the exception of the absence of the Riddler, you had the grounding in just about anything you needed to really understand the villains, the, the extra material that you had with the Batcave and what Batman's, you know, equipment was. It really, really is great, and I do remember that I used to carry it around with an issue of, I think it was Batman number 263, which was a Riddler issue. Wow. And, I, and I used to carry it around with this because there, since the Riddler was missing, I had my Riddler with me too. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, because I was like that. I'm ready to go. Yeah, I'm, I'm set. I got, my, I got everything I need. <laughs> That's terrific. I love it. Yeah, it really is. It's just, it's just, it gives you everything you need. You're like, oh, I got the villains. I get to see what Batman looks like. Robin's in it. I get to understand where his cape. He operates from the cape. Oh, right. look, he was on a TV show. Like, it really does give you all those wonderful things. And all that for a dollar, 
cannot beat it. It is really oh. one of the great DC treasuries, and it's one of the things that made me love them so much. It makes me want to do. It made me do the website, and it made me do, makes me want to do the show. Is talking about these because these are just so much fun. So uh, we are going to wrap the show up here. But before we do that, I have a questionnaire that I, I want to ask. I'm going to ask you, Dan. I'm going to ask this of, of all my guests for the first time. It's very simple. Just a couple of questions. First off, is is this your favorite? I'm going to we're going to limit to DC because we're talking about a DC book. Is sure. this your favorite DC treasure? Well, as I as I mentioned, it's 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 one of those three, and I think it really depends on the mood I'm in or the day of the week that you're asking me. <laughs> but it, it's it's certainly this and the Ra's al Ghul one are probably tied, with Batman number one slightly behind it, um, only and which it's basically one one A and one B, um, and and it really having to do with the. And the reason I would pick this over Batman number one is the more it's it's the broader perspective and the broader scope of it, and the Ra's al Ghul one because of the cinematic quality of the art. So it's a it, and and the and the story, but you know, that's for another time. So I would say a qualified yes that it's my favorite. All right, very good. All right, and then my other question is, what DC treasury or character? Would you have liked to have seen gotten a treasury that didn't? And I'm not going to ask you who do you think should have gotten one because that's Wonder Woman. I think everybody could argue Wonder yeah, Woman deserved sure. a treasury. But just, in, in, you know, take seven-year-old Dan Greenfield and say what treasury would you like to have seen that they never did? What's the answer to that? Well, the, the answer to that is simply that I would have wanted the Riddler included in this one. Um, that, that, that was always the one thing that, that – that bugged me as a kid that the Riddler was, and because he also was my favorite villain, you know, the Riddler, you know, Frank Gorshin's Riddler was to me one of the great Batman villains. And the fact that he wasn't included or, you know, I mean, you get the picture of him, but the, there's no Riddler story in here, uh, bugged me. But as far as overall, you know, I, it, that's a really good question because it's not something I ever really considered. Mm-hmm. Um, but in retrospect, I certainly think that the flash would have been a really, really good, um, uh, a good treasury because of that Carmine Infantino art and, and a lot of the, the, the Silver Age Flash, maybe with a Golden Age Flash story thrown in. But you could you could make a really good argument, obviously, for Green Lantern. Sure. Uh, and your favorite, Aquaman. Yep. The fact that there's no Aquaman uh, no. treasury, especially in those in those Super Friends days when when you know one of the one of the high points of Aquaman's career as an A-list hero was right at this time. So yep. the fact that they didn't have one is, is kind of surprising. Yep. 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 All right. Well, those are all good answers. Uh, very good. So, uh, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the first episode, man. I really appreciate it. I was looking forward to this and I wanted the first episode to be gangbusters and high energy. And I knew you would bring it cause I knew how much you love this, this particular book. So thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, 13th dimension.com is, is my website. Uh, you can also follow me uh, on the Twitter uh, at uh, 13th uh, Dimension or 13th underscore Dimension. And uh, also on the Facebook, uh, just uh, like us on Facebook. Uh, I'm uh, very active in both places, both Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and we update all the time. And we, um, we do, uh, for your listeners who aren't familiar with the site, we, you know, we're talking about this stuff right here. And I spend an awful lot of time writing about this kind of stuff. So if you like this podcast, chances are you're going to find something you like at the website. Absolutely true. So for us, of course, if you want to find the show, you can find this and all of our other great shows over on our network site, which is firewaterpodcast.com. Uh, and if you want to follow the show on Twitter, we have the all-purpose 
at Treasury Comics handle. That is the Twitter handle for both this podcast and my site, treasurycomics.com, since it's all sort of one big thing. So follow us over there. And please leave comments on the show thread uh, when you get a chance to. We really want to have a discussion and learn about everybody's love of these books, because I love them and I love talking about them. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Dan, thank you so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. I really had a great time. All right. Thanks, everybody. And uh, I guess until the next episode, remember, go big or go home. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. That belongs in a museum. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. That belongs in a museum! Hey, everybody. Uh, just one last thing before we sign off. Uh, there's no uh, – we're not going to be doing stingers on this show like we do on Fire and Water, but I, I did want to mention this before I – because I forgot to do it in the intro, and I absolutely can't forget to mention this before this episode ends. Uh, I hope you liked the theme. I know you did because the intro theme is awesome, and that is the work of our pal Luke Dobb, all-around creative genius Luke Dobb. Gave Luke just a little piece of an audio sample, and I said, can you build a theme around this? And he defied my expectations, did way better, uh, just blew him away. Just did such a such a fun theme. It exactly has that feeling of bigness that I wanted. He did such a great job. He's a great musician. He's a great artist. He's a great all-around guy. So if you like his work, you like his artwork, and I know you do because I know you've seen it, go to his website, dobcreative.com. We'll have the link in the show notes. Uh, so, again, if you like the theme, the intro and the outro themes, you have Luke to thank. And I, I thank him very much for, for producing the theme. I think it's great, and it makes me want to do the show even more. So thanks to Luke Dobb for a great theme, and we'll see you guys later. Bye.